is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. We talk a lot about entrepreneurship on this show, but not everyone is cut out to be an entrepreneur. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Not everyone wants to go through all the craziness to start their own business. But if you're listening to this show, I bet you do want to have control over your own life, to have a meaningful career, to have flexible, uh, autonomous work situation, and to help build cool things. Great news. You can help entrepreneurs focus on what they do best by doing what you do best. And if what you do best is attention to details, is numbers, accounting, finance, I have an amazing opportunity for you right now. Charleston, South Carolina, Ceteris, fast-growing startup that is helping small businesses automate and turn their accounting processes into something that's not a headache, but is actually a delight. If you want to join that team, go to isaac.ceteris.com and get more info. Yo, yo, yo. What's happening, man? Oh, man. Christmas time is finally here. And the rest of the world has caught up with me by giving itself permission to start listening to Christmas music. Man, Christmas music, I have to make myself wait until after Thanksgiving because I get excited in mid-November and I always want to start listening. But then if I do, by mid-December, I'm sick of it. And then I'm like, well, crap, I got two weeks until Christmas, you know, I want to keep the spirit. So I've got to, I've got to keep it restrained because there's always that initial excitement. And then after a while, you're just like, I can't hear, you know, uh, we need a little Christmas now one more time or I'll blow my brains out, you know? Help me understand this phenomenon because we've talked about me and how I listen to Christmas music all year round. And I can easily understand a person who's like me, but what is it with the people that can only listen around Christmas? Is it? Are, are, do you just not have a diverse range of Christmas music? Do you not have enough songs? What's going on? No, I mean I've got a pretty diverse range. Like I, any any like Christmas jazz type stuff is you can do that pretty pretty consistently. But the songs that I love the most are the ones that are familiar, and so especially a lot of the old hymns, uh, the old you know sort of Christmas carols. Um, and then I like a lot of the kind of Rat Pack era Christmas, you know, sort of jazzy lounge music type stuff. Um, so with those, those are the ones you want to hear because they evoke memories. And that's a great feeling. That's what's wonderful about this season. But if you hear them too much, you're ready for it because there's like a certain time period where you're like, you want those memories. You want to be living in that Christmas, you know, sort of nostalgic time. But then you're like, okay, it's time to move on. Now it's time to move on to like a new year, fresh start. Let's get all the Christmas decorations out of here, clean slate. And like if that music goes on for too long, it's like dragging me backwards in time. And I'm not big on that. The Christmas is the only time of year where I'm really at all into reflecting on the past, where I'm at all interested in traditions or you know, nostalgia. Christmas is the only legitimate holiday in my mind. I hate all other holidays are totally useless to me. I hate them. I could completely do without them. 
So um, I agree with your recent status. Like the only legitimate holidays would be like Game Sevens, mm-hmm. Super Bowls, things like that. Yep. Now, w- one one quick observation about Christmas music, though, and then I'll I'll leave it alone, is it is the only genre of music that is completely incorruptible. Every form of music can be twisted. You know that I'm a, I'm a big horror movie fan. I've seen every form of music used in horror movies, from children's songs to classical music. There's something that you can do to the music to make it sound creepy and eerie and make you never listen to that song the same again. You can't do it to Christmas music. You can't make Christmas music scary. And I think that provides empirical evidence that Christmas music is just pure, man. It's pure and sacred. I'm almost ready to agree with you, but have you heard the Christmas shoes? The Christmas shoes. No, no, I'll go check it out. I've had a lot of people send me examples. I haven't been impressed. What is the Christmas? No, no, this song is is horrifying, but not because it's trying to be horrifying. It is, (laughs) it is the worst, sappiest. Like, oh god, it's horrible. It's it's like a little child singing about how he's in line at the store and he needs to buy shoes for his mama because she's gonna go meet Jesus tonight and she needs shoes and. He needs like he's some guy. He's asking some guy to help him pay for them because he only has a nickel in his pocket. Or I mean, it's just absurd. It's so over the top. It's so <laughs> sappy. It's it's it is very hard to handle. It's actually quite terrifying. If you listen to it, you will have nightmares. <laughs> You'll feel like Dude, you're you trapped in like a screwed. yeah. You're like trapped in one of those Hallmark miniseries. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty awful song. So anyway, Thanksgiving uh, is now past and. Um, the Lions won, which is amazing. I'm feeling super great. Today, I want to talk about something that we have never really explicitly talked about because it's something I, I never write about it, ever. I never really talk about it. I kind of don't like things that talk about relationships, dating, love, romantic stuff, like advice or insight. It, it, it's ever, I mean, I've never liked it. I never, I hate it when Heather and I had to go through marriage counseling, you know, before we would get married, like you read these books, <laughs> they just, they were just stupid and cheesy. And like, I never really read articles on this stuff. It's just not something I've ever been interested in, but something made me decide we should have a, a episode about this. What made you decide that? Well, it was kind of a lot of things. I've been noticing lately that a huge number of – I was actually asking a colleague of ours, Derek McGill, and he, he actually wanted to join us on here today, um, but he can't. He's busy right now. We conveniently scheduled it when he couldn't make it. Sorry, Derek. Um, he wrote a Quora post. It was a, an answer to a question, what is the best advice your mother ever gave you or some something like that? And he wrote something to the effect of not to put all your time and energy into – women or making women happy or making women like you, but to have something deeper, more important, more meaningful in your life than that. And it blew up. I mean, the post was like viewed like 200,000 times or some crazy thing. And it had a lot of funny comments and criticism or whatever. Well, so that kind of, you know, started me observing people's, um, I don't know the, the way that they approach, you know, appealing to the opposite sex or relationships or dating or whatever it might be. And I was asking Derek recently about all all these – I've observed a lot of young people you know, on social media or in person or wherever just doing things that seem really odd to me or or they seem to struggle with things that don't seem at all like they would be that difficult to me. And I was asking Derek like what's going on here and he's like how can you not see it? 
It has nothing to do with a job or Facebook or all these other things that are, are put out there. It's that this person just really, really wants the attention of the opposite sex and they don't know how to get it and they're frustrated. And I was like, that seems like a little bit oversimplistic. But the more I started to think about it and look, I thought, oh my gosh, I've been, I've been, you know, out of the game, so to speak, for so long. I mean, I got married when I was 19. You know, Heather was only the, I only ever dated one other person besides Heather. And, um, you know, I was never like sort of on the dating scene, going to bars and clubs and things like that. So I don't really know much about it. It's been, you know, 15 years basically since I've been uh, trying to uh, uh, get any, any females attention or anything, but it kind of like, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, you're right. I kind of forgot that that's like a huge part of people's lives. So anyway, I started to think about it and I started to look at people, you know, their, their attraction to like studying how to be cool and like postures to st power poses, what posture to stand in that will make you look more confident, how to peacocking. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like I yeah. see this kind of stuff and I'm like, who is this appealing to? What, what is the, I mean, just don't be an idiot. Just be yourself. That's all that like, well, I don't get it. What's it so calm. And so I was kind of asking Derek and I had this conversation and he's like, you're forgetting man, that this is a number one motivator. And this, this is the thing that made me decide we had to talk about. It. He told me that a, a young person told him one time that they, they're very driven and they want to succeed sort of entrepreneurship, business, whatever they want, uh, creative uh, arts. They want to succeed at a huge level. They're very driven. And they told him the reason why is because they want to make a ton of money so they can get women. And I, and that just broke my, my heart. I thought, I thought, man, that is a really yeah. thin thing to be your core motivation. Like, okay, I want to succeed in business so that I can get money. Okay. Well, that's probably going to be a tough thing to do if your main motivation is money, not sort of a passion for whatever it is you're trying to go after. And then, but money wasn't right. even the end, but so that by having money, I can get women. And it just seemed backwards for a whole lot of reasons. So I thought this would be a good thing to talk about. You and I, uh, I don't know, we're, we're old married dudes now, but, um, you know, we've, we've seen some stuff we've, we've been around. It might be fun to, to delve into it. So what do you think? Oh man, it sounds exciting. I'm ready for it. And you know, informally, this is something that happens anyway. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, informally, this is something that happens. Oh, it's all good, man. It's all good. I mean, at some point in, in every guy's life, he, you know, he, he takes advice from another guy. It could be an older brother. It could be his dad. Uh, it could just be a friend that he respects or trusts about some kind of relationship dilemma, right? Uh-oh, what do I do when I have a hard time reading the signals that I'm getting from this person? Does this person like me? They're saying this, but they're doing this, or they're doing this, and they're saying this. And, you know, um, so I think it's something that happens informally, but what we're seeing now is more people explicitly addressing it forming systems that um, profess to be able to tell people how to achieve success in this area. And it's brought a lot more attention to it, a lot more scrutiny to it. And anytime something goes commercial or mainstream, uh, things things can get interesting and confusing at the same time. Let's dive in, man. Let's right. definitely dive well, in. This, so, this sounds fun to okay, me. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this whole thing. I just want to give us the maximum flexibility to just talk from the hip conversationally easily. So first whatever we're saying here, like don't dig in too deeply. This is the first time we've talked about this topic. I have not written about it a lot. I have not thought about it a lot. So I'm kind of shooting from the hip, but second, just for ease, I'm going to 
talk about guys and I'm going to talk about being a guy and I'm going to say things like trying to get women to notice you and whatever. I'm not going to try to be gender neutral for two reasons. One, um, it's going to be hard to try to continue to balance things. And two, I am a guy and that's the only experience I have. So I think what we're talking about is going to have application to both genders, but it's going to primarily be from the perspective of a guy from, of a guy. And I'm going to primarily be talking about what I observe with guys doing who are trying to sort of get women's attention or form relationships or whatever. Um, okay. The other thing is this, this is, this is kind of what I see TK. Tell me if this is a, how you see this landscape. So I see there are these two categories that I find both kind of a little bit baffling and maybe I don't want to say troubling, like, Oh, I'm worried about kids these days. I don't mean that. Like they're interesting to me. I want to know what's going on. I want to know more about it. One is the sort of disenfranchised man, the kind, the kind of victimy women won't like me. Women won't look at me. It's not fair. The society is set up in such a way that it makes things too hard for men. You know, nice guys can never attract women. The, the sort of, you know, there's like a, there's like a subculture of like a pouty complaining sort of guy that feels like it's not fair that he can't get the attention of the opposite sex. Um, and then there's a second one that's like this sort of, you know, game, like I study game and like, okay, for, forget all that. I'm going to, I'm going to master the art. I'm going to learn how to get any woman I want and become like a systematic scientific, you know, player, a dude who's got game and I can get women. I'm going to study the techniques and tricks and tips. Both of those phenomena, they seem related to me, but they seem very odd. Now, now the one with game, at, at least it's an attempt to be empowered and to be like, I'm not a victim but there's something about it that feels equally desperate. It, you know, it, it's almost like we always joke about with humor. Like if you're studying humor all day long, hey, 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 <laughs> because hey, you hey. feel like no one's <laughs> laughing at your jokes, so you're gonna learn through studying. Like there's just something about it that feels like you're almost—I don't know—it's like you're missing the point. Uh, do you do you see that dichotomy? Do you see those two sort of subcultures that that I am perceiving here? And do you have anything to add? Well, you said two things. The first, you talked about the the kind of attitude of a guy that says, hey, it's not fair. Women won't like me because I don't have this or I don't look like that. I mean, first of all, this is something that everybody, regardless of gender, struggles with at some level. There are a lot of women out there who feel like the game is rigged against them, like life isn't fair because they didn't win the genetic lotto or there's so much pressure on society for women to look a certain way in order to be accepted or taken seriously. Um, so that's something that everybody goes through. And I think this is important because all too often what makes problems difficult to resolve is a sort of solipsistic, uh, uh, you know, like the sort of uh, solipsist uh, worldview of one who says, you know, this only happens in my experience or I am the only one that, uh, that, that deals with this kind of problem. And, and it's not the case. But secondly, I don't think you you really have the power to deal with any challenge if you look at it from the vantage point of I'm a victim. That doesn't mean you have to lie to yourself about there being unfair realities, but you have to start from a point of saying, all right, here's where my life is. If I'm not a millionaire, I'm not a millionaire. And there might be certain advantages in life that come with having a million dollars. And if I don't have those, I don't have those. And I can be real with myself about all the advantages that I don't have. But as my starting point, 
how can I make the most out of my life given what I have? I feel like if you don't start from that vantage point, you're always going to be disempowered no matter what the subject is you're talking about. So anytime guys going around saying it's not fair because of this or that, and, and I think another problem with that too is that it treats the affection of a woman as if it's something that she owes you if you do all the right things. And and that's something that we should get into a little bit later because I think this is at, at the heart of a lot of frustration. And I think a lot of people just don't know how much this kind of logic influences the male psyche, um, this sort of belief that if I do the right things, I can get a woman to give me her attention and affection out of a sense of you, duty or you know out of a sense of obligation. You know what it reminds me of? I know you you, you were going to say something else. Do you want to finish your thought first? Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So this, this, I just came to me, this, this idea, the obligation or duty, or, you know, you owe it to me. I'm doing all the right things. I'm supposed to be getting rewarded is a huge parallel between that mindset when, when it comes to a guy approaching women and people approaching the relationship with an employer. Now I see this all the time. There's this one fundamental worldview and it's, it's more common in like older in, in, in sort of union, uh, worker generation. I mean, I, I lived in Michigan and worked, <laughs> worked with and around a lot of people in unions that have this mentality. It's this worldview that sees the relationship between an employee and an employer as fundamentally antagonistic and as like, they're both at each other's throats, trying to screw each other at every turn. And and it's fundamentally the only thing that keeps it in place are rules. And as long as you follow the rules, you absolutely deserve exactly specifically what you think you're supposed to get. So I've found um, some young people, whether they're looking into Praxis or uh, even people that have applied to work at Praxis at various points, where you'll talk with them about the opportunity and they're all excited and they get it. Like I get it. I'm going to get in. I'm going to get my foot in the door. I'm going to prove myself. And it's got all this opportunity. It's amazing. This company's doing cool stuff. I can help them do cool stuff. Let's explore. Let's figure it out. And then they come back after a couple days and they sound like a totally different person. And every time it's because they talk to a parent who has this fundamental antagonistic worldview and the parent always feeds them questions and they come back and they don't even sound like themselves. And they're like, well, how will I know? Do you have a pension plan? How will I know that you're not going to screw me over? How will I know? What if the employer says I'm yeah. going to work 30 hours a week and then they make me work 35 or the, are the hours going to be tracked? Like this whole mindset that clearly didn't come from them. And sometimes it does, but a lot of young people don't yet have that worldview. Um, well, I, I, that's not fair. Actually, a lot of them do. But when it comes to employers, I guess I see that parallel. And it's it's a it's a combination of this is fundamentally antagonistic and like which starts you off in a desperation sort of, um, you know, in deficit mode where like this it's like, you know, this this job, they don't want me to work there. So I have to somehow make it in and they're not going to be happy. They're going to be looking for an excuse to fire me at any turn, right? Which if you know, working in a business, it's completely opposite. You never want to fire someone. You wish you could just hire people all the time. If you could find good people. Um, but this worldview and then it's, well, so I better make sure I do everything right. And then if I do everything right, I am going to demand every, I, I, nope, I followed the rules. I did this. You said, you give me this. You got to make sure you give me this. You got to deliver. Cause I did my part. And it's like, well, hold on the rules. Like we've talked about in the episode previously, the rules are not there because they're hard and fast rules of reality. The rules are just a shortcut to try to help us figure out what we really want. We just want you to create value and we'll create value for you. And so I think a similar mindset brought to this, the realm of relationships 
all right, well, no women want me. Women are all scared of men. They, they want to, women want to lie to men and they want to, you know, cheat and they want to, you know, break our hearts. And well, the only way you got to, you got to figure out the rules. Women say they want this. I'll do these things. And then a woman will have to give me what I need. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, one of the most liberating, liberating ideas I ever came across. And this, this came to me you know, from my dad, he totally hurt my feelings when he first said it, but it was the most liberating thing he ever said to me uh, when I was a teenager. And that is, you are not that important. You really aren't, you know? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead and send me your emails about how we're all important in the eyes of God or in some spiritual sense and whatnot. But then when you go back into the real world in your real life, you will know the truth of this statement that you are not that important. You can drop dead right now. And the overwhelming majority of people won't care. The overwhelming majority of people will get back up in the next the next morning and they will go to work and they will continue worrying about paying their bills, worrying about raising their kids, worrying about achieving their dreams and so forth. Um, never underestimate how easy it is for people to get over you. People will get over you when you're gone. You're not that important. Now, why is that liberating? Well, the implication of that is this. No one is out to get you. You'd have to be so important for people to be out to get you. Pe the only rule is that people are out to get what's in it for them. People are interested in their self-interest. You are not so important that people are spending all of their time plotting around how to destroy you or how to annoy you or how to ruin your day. People just want to fulfill their own desires. And sometimes that conflicts with yours. Sometimes it comports with yours. But part of the game of life itself is learning how to read other people's self-interest and learning how to be effective at getting what you want through the process of helping other people get what they want. But if you approach that process antagonistically as if everybody is out to get you, you're fundamentally disempowered and you have an inaccurate worldview, one that seems humble on the surface. It makes you sound like a victim on the surface, but it's actually a very arrogant worldview because you're over-exaggerating your importance. You know, when you, people just don't think about you that much. They don't have that much time to be worried about you, you know? Um, <laughs> Men, women are not out there sitting in some smoke-filled room, drumming their fingers and thinking, oh man, wait, just wait till we, we're going to go out there. We're going to confuse them. We're going to break their hearts. We're going to mock them. It's going to be great. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to make it so hard on this guy. <laughs> right, right. But now, but there is something to be said about understanding what another person wants. So if you're interested in a particular person, there is something to be said about figuring out what makes that person tick, what makes that person happy, what are they interested in, because that could be useful information to you, you know, in the process of interacting with them. But even then, when you approach that as some sort of formula, some sort of formula that says, all right, if I do this, then they'll do that. So for instance, I, I, I addressed this, I had an article that was surprisingly controversial uh, to me. Um, it, it was about nice guy syndrome. And it was about something, I don't know how privy women are to this. I, I can only speak from the perspective of a guy, but every guy knows this about other guys. Most guys have at some point in their lives believe that by being nice to a girl who was not interested in them, they could magically make that girl interested in them. And, and most guys have played the role at some point in their lives of trying to use um, insincere acts of kindness and sacrifice in order to get a woman to fall in love with them 
And most guys know the heartbreak, the frustration, the anger and disappointment of getting to a point where they say something like, you know, I woke up at, you know, one in the morning to come pick you up from this party or change your flat tire or do this thing that I didn't even want to do because I thought that if I sacrificed myself for you and was really nice and never, you know, uh, disagreed with you and laughed at all your jokes, even though I didn't think any of your jokes were funny, that you would fall in love me, with me. But you're still going after those other guys. Every guy knows that feeling. <laughs> I don't know what it's like for girls, but every guy's been there. Um, at least most of them have. And, and so I wrote an article about how if you're going to be nice, be nice because that's a genuine expression of your character. But don't ever do something for a girl that you're interested in simply because you believe that she's going to think she owes you her affection as a result of you doing that, because that's always going to end up with you being hurt and you losing. And, and you know, not, 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 not to say, you know, I, I mean, um, and, and, and that, that doesn't even speak to the problem of not even respecting her, you know, as an independent entity who gets to make her own choices. But man, that was so controversial. People were just like, well, I what, think it's a were, good thing to be nice. Saying? Oh, like they you thought know, you were saying like, be a jerk or something like that. Yeah, yeah, oh. they, they they thought I was saying things like, uh, "Be a jerk," you know, "Don't be nice." I was attacking the power of of being a gentleman. But you know, th there's a, there's a book that covers this. His, the author's name is Robert uh, Glover, and it's called "No More Mr. Nice Guy," and and he talks about this nice guy syndrome. How a lot of the nicest guys are also the meanest guys, because when they get mad, when they get mean, boy, do they feel righteous about their anger. Because they have spent so much of their lives being uncontroversial and settling for things they don't want, saying yes when they rather say no, just because it's not just that they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but they're negotiating without being honest about it. If I do this for you, then you're going to do something else for me. And then when those nice guys lose, they can be some of the meanest people in the world. And so Robert Glover talks about in this book how you've got to let go of that nice nice guy syndrome and you have to learn how to love and pursue love from a place of self-authenticity. That means you've got to let your no be no, even if that means someone doesn't like you as a result of it. Someone doesn't, you know, someone gets their feelings hurt. As I heard one guy say, I would rather be epic all by myself than lonely with someone else. And the only way to get to that point is to be honest about who you really are, even if that means someone else looks at that as mean. But it is a real problem, a real problem among young men of trying to use uh, fake niceness in a way to win, win a woman's affection. So there's a pattern that I think is very natural and needs to happen. And if it hasn't happened yet, that's probably the problem with <laughs> with angry or frustrated or, oh, I'm going to research and study games so I can get good at women. Um, and that is this, this is, this is the simple story arc. Like once you're maybe 12 or 13 or something, all of a sudden you're like, Oh, women. Wow. That's cool. I'm super interested in women. I want their attention. I think they're beautiful. I want them to notice me. I'm, you know, you got all these crazy emotions and everything. And then some point, I mean, for me, it was like maybe 16, maybe 17, 18, 19, 20. I don't know. But at some point in there, you go from whatever that age is when you start, you know, writing poems about women and chasing women and hoping they notice you and trying to be cool for them. And you you put all your effort into everything you're thinking about every day is how can I get women to like me? And the first time you realize 
uh, a girl is like, you know, breaks your heart somehow, whether it's just in a really small way where you realize she was never really paying attention. Or like you said, you're trying to be all nice and she doesn't reciprocate or the first time you realize making the attention and interest of the opposite sex, the focal point, the main goal of your life is only going to lead you to heartbreak because no one is attracted to that. And because it just makes you a, a lesser version of yourself. You have that first heartbreak where you realize that you were way more interested in this girl than she was interested in you. And it breaks your heart. Then you have the aha moment and you're like, Oh, I need something more important in life. I need something that I'm more passionate about. I need something that I, my sense of fulfillment, my sense of self worth must come from something completely unrelated to what the opposite sex thinks of me. And you have that realization and you, and you change focus. And then paradoxically, once you're someone who's not motivated by what the opposite sex thinks of you, who's motivated by something more deeper, more sturdy, more fundamental, all of a sudden you probably will end up attracting the attention of the opposite sex. And you probably are much more likely to then, you know, whatever, develop a relationship and move on and actually be sort of, uh, attractive or, or lovable by someone. But if you go after it for that purpose, it won't work, right? That's the whole thing with the, with the paradox. But I think that moment, I don't know if this is just a, a pattern of a delayed adulthood in general, kind of, you're just in classrooms shielded from the world for 12 years and then four or five or six more years in college, whatever else. And it's all kind of very surface level and, and everything is delayed having responsibility, discovering who you really are because everything's prefabricated for you. All your tasks and chores and goals and schedule are given to you. You're not forced to sort of get to know who you are, what motivates you. Maybe that's delaying this, but I feel like that's, there are people twenties, thirties who still haven't had that first realization. Oh, geez, this isn't really going to end well. I mean, even if, even if I get the girl, I'm going to realize I need something more than that as a goal in life. My, if my goal in life is to attract women or attract the attention of one woman, um, I'm never going to be fulfilled. I need a much more profound, deep, unshakable goal. And that realization I feel like hasn't happened. I feel like there's so many people at a much older age than you would expect still seeking their sense of self-worth from the attention of the opposite sex. Do you agree with that observation or is this just old man Morehouse shaking his stick at kids these days? No, I, I do agree with that observation. And I think it's it's one of the more difficult things for a younger person to see. Um, and, and it's easier for us to talk this way, right? Because we have certain questions answered now. We're not at a stage in life where we're wondering things like, oh, am I ever going to fall in love? Am I ever going to meet that person? And it can be easy to forget or underestimate just how much that can dominate your thinking uh, when you're young and single. But one thing that I tell people whenever young men ask me for advice, I always say, if I just have like 10 seconds to give you advice and that's it, I'll say this, that the ultimate prize to be pursued in life is that of your own potential. It's, it's, it's a life filled with purposefulness that that comes first. And if you pursue that, you know, everything else falls into place because if you're pursuing a life of purpose, then you can be confident that the people you will intersect with will be the right kinds of people. But if you're compromising your sense of purpose, if you're compromising your potential in order to gain the affection or approval of another person, then 
your compromise doesn't really mean anything because compromise is only meaningful within the context of conviction, right? Um, I have to have something about myself that is non-negotiable in order for my willingness to negotiate to mean anything. If I don't have anything about myself that is non-negotiable, then I'm not negotiating. I'm just being a spineless, desperate person who's trying to do anything and everything to get what I want from a consciousness of lack. This brings me to another point that's relevant to what you just talked about. I, I've referenced before uh, the book by the economist John Kay called Obliquity, where he covers this concept of how the best way to get what you want is to go about it in, in the counterintuitive way. And, and I think we're touching up on a problem that shows up in a lot of different areas of life, but dating is one of those areas where it's it's glaringly obvious. And that's this. In order to successfully pursue something, you have to get rid of that tendency to approach it with a mindset of desperation. Um, Abraham Hicks says, neediness attracts neediness. And I like that way of putting it. And, and that's something that I think we really get when we look at it, when it comes to things like money or friends. And you and I have talked about this a, a number of times, right? Like nobody wants to buy anything from that salesperson who's just a little bit too desperate. You know that they're desperate to pay their rent. You know that they'll tell you anything to get the money and, and they've just got neediness all over them. You want to buy from the salesperson that has a little confidence, that has a little outcome detachment, and that has this mentality that says, yeah, I, I want your business, but I want to I want to make sure that I get your business by creating value. And I don't feel the need to pressure you. If you don't want to buy today, that's fine. If you don't want to buy it all, that's fine. I'm not coming at this in, at this exchange from the vantage point of feeling like I am going to be homeless if you don't buy my product today. It's all good. Those are the people that we trust. Those are the people that we want to talk to. It's the same with friendship as well. If, if someone comes up to you and whether they say it explicitly or implicitly, oh, uh, will you hang out with me today? I just need anybody. I just need anybody to hang out with me. I just need a friend, anybody. That person is unattractive to <laughs> it's, you, right? It's, it's like, like the uh, it's like some of our Facebook hero nominations. The person, who, yes. they're just they have nothing to say about the post. They just obviously like want to associate themselves with you or want to know, like, hey, hey, I'm here. I like, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we talk about this at Praxis a lot about w when you're making an impression on an employer, you never want to convey to someone that's interviewing you for a job this mentality that says, hey, man, I just need a job. You know, I, I just need some money. I just need a job. Nobody will ever hire you if uh, they hold, ask hold you. Hold up. I need to stop you there because yep. this this is the crux of the matter. This is the distinction. So what you just said, and I know you didn't mean it this way, but it's just totally conventional language. When you mm -hmm. said you never want to convey desperation. This is where that second branch splits off. A lot of people hear that and say, aha, okay, okay. I've got to study a way to make myself not appear desperate. I've got to sort of mask my desperation. And that is not, that will never work. That will make it even worse. What TK mm -hmm. is saying is you have to never be desperate. You have to attain the mental, the inner state that truly doesn't need the job that truly doesn't need the attention of that woman or whatever it might be. You can't just say, I'm desperate and that's unattractive, so let me study the art of not appearing desperate. Let me let me learn how to be too cool for school. Let me learn to be nonchalant. Because that, that stuff can be smelled from a mile away too, and that has an even more corrosive 
um, I think that's even more damaging. I think the most unhealthy thing any person can engage in is a, a widening of the gap between who they are and who they think they are or who they attempt to project that they are trying to be something mm-hmm. you're not. So if you are desperate, it's almost better to just own that desperation and then say, I've got to learn to overcome this desperation. It's like if you're an alcoholic, pretend, doing things to make sure nobody thinks you're an alcoholic is worse than just being open about it and then saying, let me deal with this now. Um, and it's similar. You're addicted to whatever it might be, somebody's attention or security or whatever. But so I think that's a key fact because a lot of people will hear this and they'll go that like game theory route. Aha, this is why women don't like me because of this fundamental misalignment of where I get my self-worth. Therefore, give me 10 tips to hide that instead of addressing it, instead of getting to the core, you know? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's just like making money again, like it's okay to desire it. Desire is separate from desperation. Those aren't in the same things. Desire is legitimate and empowering. Desperation is disempowering. It's okay to desire it, but in your desire for it, you have to have an attitude that says, hey, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be cool. Like no single transaction means everything, right? Um, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll find a way. You don't want to approach things in a desperate way. It reminds me there, there's a Russell Crowe movie that uh, Michelle and I watched together called The Next Three Days, and we now have this running joke as a result of it. His his wife, he, um, the wife of his character, um, is is arrested, and this happens at the beginning of the movie, and she's like accused of this crime and of, of murder, and he doesn't believe that his wife did it, so he's gonna try to bust his wife out of jail, and so he hooks up with all these different shady characters to get fake forms of identification, to get a plan, and so one day he goes to meet up with this guy to get a fake passport, And when the guy hands him his passport, he looks at him and he says, you're going to screw this up, man. You want it too bad. You got to relax. You got to find a way to relax. You want it too bad. And so now whenever Mm -hmm. Michelle and I like have a horrible day, we both just laugh and like say about the other person, you need it too bad. Like you need it too bad. You got to let something go. And, and, And we're almost always right. Even though it's funny, like anytime we really need a person to call us or we really need someone's help. It I mean, never you, works. You know, it's one of those laws of the universe. I mean, Heather and I joke about the same thing. If one of us is like, if she's like, Oh, my back is really sore. I did not sleep well tonight. Would you please rub my shoulders? I'm immediately just like, <laughs> Ugh. you know, like I feel like a prisoner, like, no, I'm, like, I don't, maybe I will. I know, you know, like, Ugh. but if she was just like, Hey, would you mind rubbing my shoulders? I'd be like, sure. I'll rub your shoulders. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like I can feel almost the oppressive shackles of your needing me. You know what I mean? And there's oh, something absolutely. about that. Yeah. Okay. So look, if I could say one thing, if you take nothing away from this episode, if there's if there's young dudes out there, single dudes or whatever, listen to this, or or not single, either way, if I could say one thing, it's stop it, stop caring what women think about you. Stop deriving your sense of self worth. Stop making your greatest adventure or your greatest conquest in life to get the attention of women. Stop it. Let it go. Find something deeper. Be someone who truly isn't desperate, not trying to mask it, not trying to study game and techniques for getting women. Become someone who is happy with who you are and 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 start to become a better version of yourself and know what it is that you want and, and that thing that TK said that you would never compromise, things that are non-negotiable. Figure those out. 
forget about trying to win the attention of women. Focus on your attention on what you want to go after. Now I say this, but I know that it's useless to say that because you just have to go through it. You and I both went through it, TK. You ready to get personal? $50,267. That is the average starting salary for Praxis graduates. Their average age, 21. Most of them do not have a college degree. Many of them came straight out of high school. All of them wanted more than classrooms and studying and fretting over GPAs and graduating and shooting out resumes, hoping one landed somewhere that they didn't absolutely hate. They chose Praxis to get into the real world and work with amazing, fast-growing startups and small businesses right now. Why wait? To learn by doing, to reflect and study and push yourself and have coaching and, and mentoring to improve on what you're doing and then to go back to doing it. Again, that back and forth process of real world engagement in a business setting and reflecting on it, self-guided curriculum, that's what Praxis is all about. In less than one year, graduating the program starting at an average of $50,267. That's after a paid apprenticeship during the program. See, you get paid to apprentice while you're in the program with these businesses. And when you're done, you get hired on. That is a deal that no other institution can match. You, you can't get that kind of exposure and that kind of net cost of zero experience that leads you to a fulfilling life and career that quickly anywhere else. Go to discoverpraxis.com and join. Now, I say this, but I know that it's useless to say that because you just have to go through it. You and I both went through it, TK. You ready to get personal? Yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, is he going to tell him about that time when I cried over a girl? I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't going to say anything until you said it. I wasn't going to talk about the time when you called me at like two in the morning to cry about a girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, so me personally. So I had this. I was... I was about 16 and I think I was about, uh, it was maybe like between ages, like 15 and 17. It was probably 17 when, when I broke up with, again, the only other, the only girl that I've ever dated. So I'm not pretending I have a ton of dating experience, but I absolutely went through this cycle that I, I could not have learned. Like my mom would be like, well, I kind of feel like, you know, I have nothing against this girl. I just kind of feel like you're sort of playing the fool. And, and it pissed me off to no end. I, you know, you can't hear it. Someone can't tell you, you have to go through it. So I was, you know, doing everything I could. I was totally enamored with this girl and I, I just, and, and we were dating, we're kind of on and off during this time. But I mean, it, I always knew deep down 
I would never admit it to myself and I would claim the opposite. I always knew deep down that she was not as interested in me as I was in her. It just, it just was a fact. And, and I was so desperate. I literally TK, I mean, I, I became a shell of myself in many ways. Cause once we broke up, I discovered all these aspects of myself, things that I loved that I never knew that I loved all these parts of me that I never knew were there. And I, I mean, I had hobbies and interests, but every single one of them was negotiable. Every one of them. This girl was my focus and I would do anything for her. And if she was like, I'm moving away, you need to leave everything behind and move to the city I'm in if we want to be together, I would have done it. If I would have had to stop playing guitar to keep you know, her attention or keep the relationship, I would have done it. If I needed to stop playing basketball, I would have done it. If I needed to quit a job, if I needed to, you know, say no to an opportunity to do something amazing because I had to stay in Kalamazoo, Michigan, you know, I would have done it. Everything was negotiable if it meant, you know, keeping her in, in her happiness and her attention. That was totally who I was. Now, I didn't realize, I thought this was a noble thing. And, and I would write poems and songs and do all these romantic things, you know, young adolescent boy. And I thought this made me noble and like, I'm the kind of guy most girls would, would die for, you know, I do all the sweet stuff they do in those movies and buy roses and all. And like that became sort of my identity. That was who I was. And I thought this was like great. And once I finally, it got so bad that I just had to admit to myself, like she would go and hang out with other people instead of with me and times that seemed like it'd be obvious. You'd hang out with your boyfriend, right? We were still dating at the time. And, and I'm, I'm not crapping on her at all. There's absolutely nothing wrong, I don't think, with the way what she was doing. It, it all makes sense to me now. But at the time, it's like I finally started to realize, oh, my gosh, like she just – I used to say when we broke up, I used to tell people it was mutual. We both agreed that she hated my guts <laughs> because, <laughs> because it was so obvious. Like yeah. I would do anything. And it just wasn't there for her. And it almost – it was really hard for her cause she really liked me as a friend and didn't want to like make me feel bad or hurt my feelings or anything like that. And so it just sort of lasted, but she just didn't, it was just so clear. She didn't have the same level of intensity and romantic feeling that I did, but it's like, well, he's objectively like, I think it made it harder on her because I was such a nice guy who would do anything for her and go to any inconvenience. You know, I would walk a thousand miles. I would give up all my dreams, all that stuff. That made it harder because she's like, well, objectively, anyone else would be jealous of having a guy like this. Isn't this what you're supposed to want? But she didn't want it, you know, and and I felt the same way. Like, well, she's got she'll come around, you know, in all the movies, the guy who's long suffering. Finally, the girl realizes it was him all along. You know what I mean? <laughs> like this kind of sounded a little bit like Harry Carey right there when you said that lie. Just <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I've been here with my hot dog the whole time. So. <laughs> It was totally, so I had the moment and my brother like helped me break through. I was like 17 maybe. And he's like, dude, you, you need to break up with her. And so like I did, I finally did. And it was like, it's just clear that you don't like me as much as I like you. And she was like sad and crying about it, but she didn't say, she didn't say it wasn't true. Like she knew it too. And even after I broke up, I almost submarine myself. I think I like, I think I like called her the next day and was like, maybe we can still work it out or something like, like totally, <laughs> totally the wrong thing. Luckily, uh, she was like, no, I think you were right. <laughs> so once that happened and I had what felt like an eternity of a, of a wounded healing process, which was like, you know, a month or something. Um, 
And I think I went, I traveled abroad for a couple months right afterwards, which was probably really great to just sort of like get out of my normal habits and routine and friend circle and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, I think it was on that trip. I think I was in Peru. It was like, holy cow, I'm actually like a really cool person. There, I, I finally realized that all this time I had a really low view of myself. And I never consciously would have said that because I've always kind of had that cocky swagger type of talk and all that stuff. And I'm kind of a life of the party type guy. I know I certainly was a lot more back then. And so I never thought that I had a low vision of myself, but all of a sudden I realized like, you know, I'm out there on this mission trip with all these people and they're like, oh, wow, you, you know, you've read that book. Oh, you play guitar too. Oh yeah. And I was like, Dude, I'm, I'm super cool. I have all kinds of interesting parts about me. I'm talented. I got, and all of a sudden I realized like, I had thought really lowly of myself because no matter what I did, no matter how good it was, it never impressed her. And so that subtly like influenced me. And I just had, and I, I just sort of like opened up and realized and came alive. And when I had that realization, what that single-minded pursuit of a girl had done to me, I was like, forget it. I don't ever want to have, I don't ever want to date again. I don't want to get married and whatever. And, and it wasn't, there was probably a little bit of bitterness in there, but it actually wasn't primarily bitterness. It was like, I think I realized, I thought, I think I'm too weak of a person to know how to not sacrifice my own identity if I'm, you know, pursuing the, the love of a woman. So I'm just never going to do it. And I, and I meant it. And I was actually happy with it. I was like doing all these mission trips. I wanted to go. I, I had a, I wanted to die in like some crazy rebel uprising in some country. I thought that'd be a great way to go. And I, I truly, I had this amazing, this weird, I was like fear. I had no fear of death. I mean it. I had like a weird total shift in my worldview. I was playing like I had nothing to lose all of a sudden. All of a sudden life was just full of possibility and I didn't care. I would go in, I would live anywhere. I would move anywhere. I would try anything. It just opened up the world to me. And when I did that, I meet Heather not long after that with like a whole group of friends and we all start to, you know, become friends and everything. And I thought she was really attractive, but it was like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't care. I don't really care about women. And I really didn't. And then, and we were becoming better and better friends and we shared all kinds of intellectual interests, which by the way, right around the time I broke up with that girl was when I like started reading. I never read. I had no, I was not intellectual. I did not read a lot of books or whatever. I, I barely was into any of that stuff. I got really into philosophy, economics, et cetera. It's like everything opened up. So a year or two later, I meet Heather, we become friends, all this stuff. And then eventually with Heather, it was a total opposite. Like our friendship had grown so deep and it was so obvious to everyone else that like we were madly in love with each other. And, and Heather was more aware of it than I was early on. Like, but I was, I was so accustomed to just like not needing women, not needing, I don't need it. I don't want to get married. I don't want to be, you know, that I, it like took me a while to be like, Isaac, now you're just lying to yourself in the opposite direction, you know? And we had to come to terms with like, basically you were dating. So we might as well just call it what it is, but it had grown out of a friendship and in a genuine way, I was never pursuing her in the same way where I was like trying to be someone different, willing to sacrifice. I wasn't willing to sacrifice anything. And I would say that today. I'm still not, I don't, I don't pursue Heather and try to make her like me and be impressed with me. I just go after who I am and be who I am. And because of it, she's totally impressed with me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so anyway, that, that's my own personal story. And having gone through that now, when I see young guys who have not yet had that sort of moment, I want to just tell them, I want to give them a cheat code. I want to try to do what my mom tried to do. Like, I think you're kind of making a fool of yourself, but you can't, you can't, I mean, you're intoxicated by it. You can't until you, you've got to have the realization yourself. 
Is that, yep. I don't know. What, what would you say? Yep. On, I know you have a sort of similar experience, but somewhat. Oh, different. dude. Dude, I have so many experiences like that, but you know, one one of the distinctions that that comes clear to me as I listen Wait, so to you, you speak on this. More, you went through it more than one time, and you didn't learn your lesson, <laughs> right? You're like, oh, I have like 15 experiences like this. <laughs> I'm still going through it right now, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you can hear dude, Michelle in the background. <laughs> DK, I thought you were gonna do the dishes. I'm good. I'm coming, baby. I'm coming. I'll be right there. <laughs> I'll be right there, uh, best friend. Uh, you know, you know what's funny? What's funny is she's right here. Um, this has never happened for one of our podcasts before. She has never been around for a single podcast. Um, but today, she, you know, she, she's off work today. And so she's right around here as I'm talking. So it is absolutely hilarious to me that um, that you'd be like, man, you know what I got to talk about today? <laughs> I got to talk about women. <laughs> hey, man. hey. <laughs> so, so I, I know you're going to you're going to tell your own story. And, and I want to hear uh, the things you were thinking about when I was saying that. I know I do this to you all the time, but it's funny and I have to say it because <laughs> I'm um, I can't help myself. You remember that one time my brother, you and I love this story. My brother was maybe 18, 17. And he was thinking about going into like the ROTC or the Marines or something. He, he just wanted a challenge. You know, it's funny thinking about now him in the military. It's great. He never did that. But he was looking around and he went to a recruiting office and the guy was like, yeah, man, it's like super <laughs> hardcore, blah, blah, blah. And you could, you could do artillery. You could do this. You could do this. And then my brother's like, oh, what did you do? He was like, oh, I was a chef. And he's like, oh, but it was super high stress. You know, I had to make all this food. And he's like playing up. And then he's like, <laughs> he gets a call and he's like, he's like, hello. And it's his wife. And he's like, damn it, woman. Blah, 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 blah. And he like, <laughs> and he like hangs up the phone, but it was so obvious that he was like, probably Sorry. as soon as Levi left, going to call him back. Hey, sorry about that, honey. I had somebody <laughs> in right. here. I had to. <laughs> <laughs> I had to say what I had to say. You know how it is. I, I was recruiting this guy. You know, I wanted to make a strong impression, baby. <laughs> oh. All right. So okay. your, your, your turn. Well, you know, one of the distinctions that uh, that came clear to me as, as you were talking about this situation is uh, there's a difference between being passionate about achieving a result and being afraid of failure. Right. Um, and, and those two things often get confused, but they're very distinct. And as some people listen to us talk about relationships and things like that, they might think to themselves, OK, yeah, well, you guys got it easy now because you're married and all questions are answered yeah, and you yeah, forgot yeah, what it was like. Yeah. Actually, actually, I think these things become even more challenging within the context of marriage and they don't go away. This is actually one of the myths right? Of finding the one. It's sort of like that old myth with finding what you love. When people say, once you find what you love, you'll never work another day in your life. Wrong. That's when you'll like work harder than you ever have before. Yeah, and or, no or else you'll start to hate it all of a sudden and be like, oh, I thought yeah. I would love this because that was my goal. And now that I have it, I, you know, it's like the dog who finally catches the mail truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, and so a lot of people are under the impression that, okay, well, well, uh, w once you get married, may maybe you never have to, you never have to think anymore, or you never have to deal with challenges anymore, or you never have to, you know, um, you know, wrestle with insecurities or any of these kinds of things. And I find, and, and this is kind of interesting why, why I brought up this distinction is almost without fail, whenever I treat my wife's dissatisfaction as something that has the power to inconvenience me and I fear it and I try to make her happy from that vantage point of fearing her unhappiness, I never succeed. I never make her happy. 
I never bring a smile on her face. The only time that I have ever been able to make her smile, ever been able to make her laugh, ever been able to satisfy her is when I do it from a place of genuinely feeling what I'm doing. Like this is the right thing for me to do based on how I feel about her and what my beliefs are. So like if I buy her flowers because I'm afraid that she might get mad at me for not buying her flowers, it's not going to work, you know? Um, and, and it doesn't matter if I communicate this to her or not. It's like an energetic thing, right? But if I do that because I just think that's a cool thing to do, even if I have no reason to think that it's going to work, it it tends to work. And it, it's one of those things that that goes back to this idea of coming at whatever it is you come at from this feeling of desperation, like, oh my gosh, like I fear your disapproval. I fear your unhappiness. I fear your dissatisfaction. I fear you taking away your attention from me. So uh, I'm gonna try to do a tap dance routine or uh, whatever it is I do uh, in order to avoid this thing that I'm uh, afraid of. That's gonna get a very different kind of response from, hey, I'm genuinely interested in you. I'm genuinely excited about doing this together. And you know what? If if that's something that we can't do, if that's something that doesn't work out, that's okay. We'll get another opportunity. Everything's cool. No pressure. You know, that's when things tend to go best. That's when things tend to get easier. You know, for me, this is um, why promises are incredibly dangerous. I think promises are very uh, a, a tremendously weakening force in a, in a romantic relationship. Oh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, okay. Think of the concept of. Uh, Nassim Tlaib's anti-fragile idea, right? Systems or things that um, even like the human body or trees, you, know, you, you, you need flexibility in order to not be shattered in a crisis. Right. Promises immediately turn, they crystallize things. They turn things into something that's fragile and shatterable. So if you say, well, I've got to, I can't do this trip with you, TK, um, because I've got, I don't have the money because I've got to get this uh, 15th anniversary diamond ring because I promised Heather on our fifth anniversary that by our 15th anniversary, I would get her a diamond ring. Now I've made this promise and now I'm, I'm, I have lost the ability, the flexibility to act out of a genuine sense of desire and this is what I want to do for you more than anything is buy you this ring or whatever, which I would never do. I have no desire to buy diamond rings, but, <laughs> but something like that, whatever it is for you. Now I'm acting because I'm, I'm constrained to a promise that I made. And it's all about loss aversion because once the promise was made, the reward comes when you make the promise. Now she's expecting it and it's just going to come and that's not going to be exciting because she already knew it. The only thing that can happen, it's just loss aversion. If I don't deliver, there'll be pain, there'll be disappointment. So now all I'm doing is trying to make good on this promise I've put myself in, otherwise I'll feel pain. It's pain avoidance and it's it's so fragile. So if anything comes up where it doesn't work, bam, we've shattered some trust. We've broken something. You lock yourself in, you make things unnecessarily fragile and you take away the ability to do things based on a genuine motive because you don't know if in 10 years from now you'll really want more than anything else to spend $20,000 on a diamond ring. So you've taken that away from yourself. You've you've removed flexibility and fluidity and the, the freedom to evolve and grow and to be definite in your purpose by, by attaching yourself to something that merely becomes a pain avoidance uh, activity. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, um, w one of the things 
to, to come at this from my personal experience that um, I, I relate to this in the terms of is just making friends. And, and I believe in a lot of ways that uh, your love life is an extension of, of what you practice in, in just your social life in general. Um, mm. For me, um, my wife and I, we kind of joke about this, how, you know, for me, French, I look at friends as punishment from the universe for loving solitude so much. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I deeply identify with Sartre's quote that hell is other people. I, it's not that I have ever been at this place in my life where I feel like I don't need people or I don't need friends, but I know how to be self-entertained. I have a lot of hobbies. I have a lot of interests and no one ever taught me that I'm a loser for exploring those interests without having friends who would come along to join me. So I'm just the type of person who, if there's a movie out and I want to see that movie, I, I mean, if I have some friends that are interested in it, I'll ask them, but I'm not going to wait. You know, I'm going to do what I want to do. If I want to go to the bookstore, if I want to go out to eat, I'm just going to do it. I don't, I don't feel like I'm a loser if I'm spotted in a restaurant by myself or in a movie theater by myself or in a coffee shop by myself. And because I'm really into what I love, and I'm just focused on constantly engaging what I love. I have never been without friends. It's almost like this magical thing. I will go to the movies by myself or I'll go to a Starbucks and try to anywhere, read by myself. Anywhere you go, people come out of the woodwork. It's terrible. It, it's ridiculous. And I truly do believe that it's a reflection of this non-neediness. You know, Michelle has even told me, you know, before, like, you got to stop making friends, dude. You just got to stop making friends. Um, <laughs> you can't even keep up with the ones that you have. I remember sitting, um, I was on the road in in Denver, and I, I went into uh, a Rockstar Cafe, and I had a book, and I was just reading it as I was waiting on my food. Two guys approach my table, and they say, hey, man, we've never seen anybody read a book so intensely and you've just been underlining furiously. Uh, we got to know what you're reading. Um, and it, it happened to be a philosophy book and they were like, Oh my gosh, we're philosophy majors. Can we talk with you? And they sat down and had dinner with me and, and, and the three of us just kind of had a great conversation and we decided to keep in touch. And I feel like this isn't something that happens to me because I'm trying to run game because I'm consciously trying to exploit a strategy. It happens because I'm in love with my life. And when you are in love with your life and you are following your passions and you are doing things that you truly believe in, you know, um, people can sense that people can feel that and people want to be around that. And it gives you opportunity to connect with people in interesting ways. And, th and that doesn't mean that everyone you meet will become your best friend or will become your soulmate or will be someone that's a potential dating partner, but you find that your relationships with people take on a more interesting quality. So one of the questions I like to ask people, we, we talk about Peter Thiel's question in Zero to One a lot where he says, what do you believe that nobody else believes? But my variation of that question is, what do you believe in so deeply that you're willing to be honest about it even if a girl you're really into doesn't believe it, right? What, 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 what do you take so seriously that you're willing to be straightforward about that even if someone you're attracted to is deeply offended by it? And that and could you, be anything. And you won't hold it against them and be bitter that they don't, <laughs> that they don't agree with it, you know? Right, right, right. And, and man, I, I have seen it, man. I've seen guys pretend, and I've played this role myself, but I've seen guys pretend to have religious beliefs that they know they don't have. 
you know, um, in order to please a girl. I've seen guys, you know, um, pretend like their religious beliefs they know they have aren't as important to them as it really is because they're trying to please a girl. And there's nothing wrong with desire. That's a legitimate need. But what happens is when, when you say, I am willing to compromise any aspect of myself, I am willing to put another person's approval first, you know, in order to validate my existence, you're sending out a message that says, I don't really have any convictions. I'm not a leader. I don't have a backbone. I don't know why I'm here. I don't have a sense of purpose. And here's something people only treat as controversial when you talk about it within the context of dating. But here's something that just in general is, is undeniably true. And, and that is anytime you base your self-worth or your self-esteem, or your sense of purpose on what another person thinks of you, you're fundamentally disempowered. That doesn't, exceptions shouldn't be granted for someone that you're trying to date. It's the same thing. And or someone you're that you're married to. Someone that you're married to. And, and, it, and it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with marriage. Like even in marriage, you have to respect yourself and you have to resist the temptation to lie to yourself and lie to others just in order to have a convenient night. I mean, sticking at this thing from a guy's perspective, you and I both know this is the case. There are a lot of guys who flat out lie to themselves and lie to their wives because they just get to this point, man, where they're like, oh, I just want to watch the game and I just want to be left alone, right? Um, all I want to do is watch Monday Night Football tonight, so I'm just going to do whatever I got to do to get her to leave me alone so I can watch Monday Night Football. And, and you find a lot of guys, even in marriage, they treat the disapproval of their wives as something to be feared. And when you can get to this point where you say, hey man, you know, she's free to feel however she wants to feel. I don't have to be threatened by that and I don't have to be disrespectful towards that and I don't have to change her for that. I can love her no matter what kind of, you know, mood she's in or what she's feeling today, you know? Um, and I can be cool with that. You just tend to enjoy life more. You tend to be more attractive to all the people in your life. And you tend to be do a better job at meeting other people's needs because you're not coming at it from a point of neediness. Just like we talk with business. When, when you say, I got to have money, I got to have money, I got to have money, you're not in a really great position to serve people. But when you say, you know what? I'm not worried about the money. I'm here to create value for other people. And if I handle that, I know that money is something that I won't have to be worried about. And more fundamentally than just focusing on creating value for other people, I'm going to find what's something I'm so passionate about that I feel good when I create value for people in this way. And then I'm just going to focus my energy on that. And it won't work for everybody, but you'll be more fulfilled and you won't have to worry about the wealth in a similar way. I think if you say, hey, there's nothing wrong with me wanting love, wanting affection, wanting friends, wanting an awesome love life but I'm not gonna make that the number one priority. I'm gonna focus on being in love with my own life and not just expecting someone to be in love with me in spite of how I feel about myself. I'm gonna follow my passions and make my sense of purpose the number one prize to be pursued, and I won't compromise that for anybody, and that will cause me to radiate a quality of energy and live my life at a level that will magnetize really awesome relationships. And then it's up to me to, to see what I wanna do with that. Yeah. And it, you know, whether it's money or love, or whatever saying, I, you know, I need money. I need it. I want it, whatever that blinds you to the self knowledge of what you actually want. If you're so focused on, I need money, I need money. You're unable to see what it is that you really need. 
because money is only a means just like some uh, the attention of a girl is only a means to a deeper level of fulfillment that you assume has a causal connection to it. You assume that's going to come, but you don't ask yourself that question. You you're blind to the self knowledge of what really makes you come alive. If you keep focusing on the means and if you remove that and let yourself go deeper, I think you can, you can discover so much more. And, and I've found that the biggest, I mean, certainly in, in, I was just talking about this to somebody um, about employees, a small business owner that all personnel problems essentially boil down to, uh, problems of self-knowledge where the employee, what they think they are diverges from what they actually are, their self-knowledge. So they want more of this kind of responsibility or they want this kind of role and they don't feel like they have it and they're unhappy. And it's usually what they're really good at or what they really, you know, would be fulfilled in is something a little different from what they think it is because prestige is getting in the way. So they think they want uh, this other job because the title sounds better and they think people like them, but they actually wouldn't be happier in that job, but they don't have that self-knowledge. And so this creates this unhappiness, right? And I think you're blind to what you, it doesn't let you see what you actually like, what you actually want it, what you're interested in. And that, and your example in the airport of people coming up to you because they saw you were an interesting person and to be interesting I wrote an article with this title to be interesting. First, be interested. If you're interested in the world, in, in whatever it is that you have that, that you pursue, maybe it's one thing, maybe it's a million things. If you're genuinely interested in that, uncompromisingly interested in it, you're going to pursue it no matter what people will find that interesting. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. If you meet someone at a party who's just super passionate about manga comics, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, or particle physics, or uh, their YouTube channel, or baseball, if they're super passionate, it doesn't matter what it is. Even if you're not actually interested in that thing, an interesting person you're interested in. That's inter that's fascinating, right? So just having that, having that focus on what makes me come alive, what do I really like, and diving into it, and being interested in the world you will become an interesting person. You will become uh, interesting to others. Um, all right, TK. So, so go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I have a concept we've talked about before. I know you hate the cheesy sounding name, but this goes back to my my concept of your zone of power. That, that every, <laughs> yeah, the ZOP, baby. The ZOP. You know I be all up in my ZOP. <laughs> in business, life, and dating. In the hive of the bee. <laughs> I love it, man. You got to get up in your ZOP. You down with ZOP? Yeah, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> your, your zone of power, it, it is the realm within which you know your principles, you know your preferences, and you know your, 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 know your priorities. And when you act from the knowledge of those three things, your principles, preferences, and priorities, you look smart. You sound confident, you sound cool, and life works effectively for you. Now, remember, success is not a democracy. You never need the majority of people to agree with your approach because for everybody that's successful, for everybody that gets what they want, there are millions of people that have something negative to say about them. So I'm not talking about getting everybody to like you, which is why I think it's so important to get out of that paradigm of finding out what women want. I mean, I'm happily married, been happily married for six years. I have no clue what women want, right? I'm, fo I'm <laughs> no focused idea. on Michelle, right? I'm not no even interested idea. in that. I'm, yeah, I'm focused Jared, on my wife and building the best relationship we can have. Um, what were you going to say? McClellan has a great joke on that. He says, uh, he says, I was never good at women, 
Uh, but then I got good at women. Well, actually, I didn't. I just got good at one woman, and she married me. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I just got lucky enough to find one person that was willing to put up with me, and, and we're on this crazy, wild, adventurous ride of creating something awesome together. But, you know, your, your zone of power is it's like it comes down to really basic things like you know how to drive a car. You know how to find a good parking spot. You know how to order a meal in a restaurant. You know if you drink alcohol or not. And if you do, you know if it's beer, wine, or whiskey. You know what you like. You know what kind of movies you like. You know what kinds of jokes aren't funny to you. You know if you really go within, you know your preferences. You know your priorities. You know your principles. And that's where your power is. That's when you're smart. That's when you don't have to think. But you step out of your zone of power when you try to create happiness and success by predicting what will make another person happy and then adjusting your preferences, priorities, and principles to that. I call that being out of your zone of power because when you do that, you become dumb because you're not smart enough to consistently and accurately predict what will please another person. When you act from principle, you act with confidence and you act with conviction. And even if people don't agree with it, even if people don't like it, they know that it's genuine. They know that it's real and they will respect you for it. On the other hand, when you do things from a vantage point of, I'm afraid that if I give you the wrong answer, you're not going to like me or you're going to end this wrong conversation. You're going to end this conversation with me. You're likely to make the wrong guess because no one is good at consistently guessing what other people want. But you'll also, even if you make the right guess, you'll also come off as weak and inauthentic, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work in business. It doesn't work in friendship. It doesn't work in any area of life, and there's no reason to think that it's magically going to work in the realm of dating. So stay in your zone of power, whether, whether you're married, whether you're dating, whether you're pursuing someone that you're interested in. You know what you like. You know what you're interested in. Go after your genuine – I mean go after your genuine passions and preferences and principles in life and don't come out of that for anybody, for anybody, you know, um, because success at the compromise of who you essentially are isn't really success at all. Who cares how happy somebody else might be with you if you aren't happy with yourself? Don't put anything above being happy with yourself first. So guys, the number one trick to get women to like you is to stop looking for tricks to get women to like you. <laughs> figure, Man, figure, out, figure out what you want to figure out what you want to be and go be it. Uh, to paraphrase the Avet brothers. Hey, let's wrap this up, man. Um, I'm going to, let's do a recommendation with the caveat because I hate books and advice about relationships, even though we just did an episode on it. So a recommendation that is relevant to the content we talked about today, but that is not a book that is seeking to give advice on relationships. Oh man. So, so I, I was going to give Robert Glover's no more Mr. Nice guy. Mm, you, nope, nope. You, you want me to go beyond that? Yep, you gotta go beyond that. All right. So, w what's the qualification again? It's got to be a book about. It, it can't be about relationships. Okay. Okay. Because I, I feel like when you're reading books about relationships, you're not going deep enough. You you still miss the point. You're still trying to figure out relationships. First, you got to become who you want to be, and the relationship stuff will develop. But going and reading about how to be good at you know romantic relationships, I don't know. I just feel like it's it's. It's, oh, it, it, it's it's all good, man. It's all good. You know, I, I got an 
uh, indefinite number of books here. So I'm going to go. Like, oh, no, no, it's good. It's good. Let me just skip over the 100 books on relationships I have here. Since, <laughs> right. since, Isaac, since Isaac thinks people who own those are totally stupid. you know. Let me just move <laughs> over to the next bookshelf here. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see here. Love. Uh, nope, nope. Humor. Nope. Let me move to the other section. <laughs> well, one second, honey. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with The Disowned Self by Nathaniel Brandon. Because I think this touches at the heart of the issue. This is not a book about how to get anybody to fall in love with you. This is a book about reclaiming the self that society has conditioned you to disown through fear. And it's a powerful book on constructing a healthy sense of self-esteem and orienting your life around the priorities that truly lead to fulfillment. The Disowned Self by Nathaniel Brandon. I'm going to go with Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. And I think this book is fundamentally about the one snare that is behind all snares and the only way to overcome it is oh, the phrase he uses that I love, which is having definiteness of purpose, not being double-minded or able to be blown around in the wind. Uh, it would be very similar to what TK was talking about in operating in your zone of power. So outwitting the devil by Napoleon Hill. TK, do you have any final words of wisdom for all those dudes out there trying to study game or feeling bad for themselves that women don't like them? Always, man, always. So uh, one of my favorite quotes is by a guy named Mike Murdoch who said, go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. If you ever find yourself in the presence of a person, no matter who they are, who's treating you that like they're doing you a favor by being your friend or giving you their time, get the hell out of there as fast as you can. You're wasting their time and you're wasting your time. Hold yourself to a standard of saying, I'm only going to surround myself with people who treat it like it's a really awesome experience to be around a person like me. And you may find at first that you lose a lot of opportunities to be around people, but you'll find out at last that those opportunities really weren't worth anything anyway. And the people that were truly worth your time are the people that see your time as something worth having. Crap, we better get off this call then <laughs> real quick, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you oh, give me man. the best setups. I love it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> hey, man. Merry Christmas. Welcome to the holiday season. Happy holidays, man. Peace. Peace. Hey, if you're a fan of the show, do me a huge favor. Go to iTunes, give it a rating or a review. A rating is only a simple click of a button, or if you're on your phone, a tap of a finger. And it will help people find the show a lot easier. And if you have a little extra time, write a review. What you think about the show? Honest opinion. That stuff goes a long way in giving more exposure to the podcast. What do you get out of all of it? You get the pleasure of knowing that as more people start listening, you get to say, I was there first. 